I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to Far-Fetched Fables, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good morning, everyone. Or good afternoon. Or even good evening. Wherever you are and wherever you are listening from, this is Far-Fetched Fables. Welcome to show number 122. I'm your host, Nicholas Heaton Clark, and we have two great stories for you this week, featuring a bit of heroic fantasy mixed with a dose of steampunk, with a supernatural twist. We'll begin with Eden Rose, the seventh of Jay Lake and Ruth Nestfold's Eleven Tale of the Rose Knights, published earlier this year by DailySciencefiction.com. Jay lived in Portland, Oregon until his death in 2014, shortly before his 50th birthday. His books include Kalimpura from Tor, and Love in the Time of Metal and Flesh from Prime. Jay was a winner of the John W. Campbell Award for Best New Writer and a multiple nominee for the Hugo and World Fantasy Awards. In 2015, he posthumously received the Locus Award for his collection Last Plane to Heaven. Ruth has published widely in science fiction and fantasy, her fiction appearing in such markets as Asimov's and Fantasy and Science Fiction. Her work has been nominated for the Nebula, Tiptree and Sturgeon Awards. In 2007, the Italian translation of her novella Looking Through Lace won the Premio Italia Award for Best International Work. Their collection of short stories, Almost All the Way Home from the Stars, is available at Amazon and via iTunes. The story is read by Heidi Hotz, a voiceover artist with a range of personalities who has been in the industry for more than 10 years and has worked on TV commercials, radio, documentaries, audio fiction and narration in general. She can be found at Voices.com. And now, Eden Rose by Jay Lake and Ruth Nestfold. When the Rose Knight, Graham Thomas, first fell in love with Eden Rose, he knew the two of them would not have an easy time of it. He was a yellow rose of the old guard in the service of the sun, while she was a white rose, a servant of the moon, her colors white and the faintest pink blush. 
The sun and the moon had long been at war, but in the way of youth, Eden and Graham knew that their individual fates would be strong enough to overcome history. The manner of their first meeting was certainly no cause for such hope. Graham Thomas, the corn silk knight, had been injured in a skirmish at Morningfields. When the eerie post-battle silence had settled over the carnage, he had been able to drag himself to a hiding place in a nearby forest. Somehow, he managed to tug his saddlebags with him, soaked with the blood of his destrier. Once safely out of sight, Graham bound the gash in his thigh tightly enough to stop the bleeding. This may have lessened the danger of his life seeping away onto the forest floor, but he was still lame and unhorsed in enemy territory. Graham propped himself up against a tree and took pen and paper out of his saddlebags. With no way at the moment to help himself further, Graham began a letter to his family. It was thus that Eden, the Pearl Blush Knight, found him. He was leaning against the wide trunk of an oak tree, and his shoulder-length blonde hair was caked with blood and dirt. Even without a squire, he had divested himself of his surcoat and chainmail. One trouser leg was ripped almost to his groin, and a makeshift bandage tied around his thigh. At the sound of the clomping hooves of our mount, he looked up from a sheaf of paper propped against his good knee. And of all things, he smiled. Who is to say what led Eden to ignore the orders at the sight of him, to pretend that she assumed he was an ally, and offer him succor? Who is to say why he did not take the way of an enemy knight, and promise her all manners of riches if she would only have mercy, and ransom him to his family? Whatever their reasons, she did not kill him, and he did not bribe her. Instead, she took him behind her on her horse and brought him to a healer she knew in Riverbend, who cleaned and dressed his wound, applying a poultice of birch and willow bark to speed the healing and discourage infection. When the corn silk knight had been under the protection of Eden Rose for more than two weeks, a delegation from the armies of the sun arrived at Boltoff's town at the edge of Moonwood bearing a white flag along with a demand for the bodies of the dead from the recent Battle of Morningfields. At the top of their list was Graham Thomas, Prince of High Ragoza. Is this you? Eden asked, pacing the small house that they had taken together since he had left the care of the healer. Yes. You never sent your letter? No. She stopped in front of him. I will have to find a way to get that letter or another to them, so they know you are well. The armies of the sun threatened to march on Boltoff's town else. And so the Cornsilk Knight finished his letter, and the Pearl Blush Knight took it to the quarters of the party from High Rogoza. While their suit was being addressed by the Moon's ministers, the representatives of the Army of the Sun had taken lodgings in a villa on the outskirts of town one often rented to visiting dignitaries. It was quite clear that they did not trust the hospitality of the moon's minions. Nonetheless, as a lone rose knight with no armies at her back, Eden was admitted easily enough. The yellow knight she handed the missive to cried out when he saw the handwriting. From the prince! He tore it open and scanned the lines quickly. When he came to the end, he glanced up at Eden Rose suspicion distorting his fair features. How do we know he was not forced to write this? 
How do we even know he is still alive? She lifted her square chin. You have my word as a rose knight. The yellow knight snorted. What good is the word of a knight in the service of the moon? Take us to him. We would be assured with our own eyes that this missive tells truth. And so the pearl blush knight led them away from the moon city to the village of Riverbend, where she had sheltered Graham Thomas. When she dismounted at a modest cottage, the knights at her back looked at each other. The prince they knew, while merry enough, would never deign to live in such a humble dwelling. But she wanted them to believe. Your prince is in here, Aidan Rose said, pushing open the door. On his pallet at the back of the main room, the corn silk knight caught the words just as he was emerging from an invalid's dream of swords and battle and pain. Beware, Eden, he called out, starting up in his bed in a sweat. His kinsmen and servants, misunderstanding his panic words, slew the pearl blush knight where she stood. When Graham Thomas realized the horror that lay before him in the front room of his modest paradise, he ordered his loyal family members to leave. She saved my life, and you repay her with death, he said. From this day forward, I am dead to my family, those who are responsible for this barbaric act, and the death of my future and my hope. But, but Graham, we thought you were warning us against her. It was an honest mistake. The prince would not answer, only gesturing from the bloody body on the floor to the door. His kinsman finally understood and left the convalescent corn silk knight alone with the corpse of Eden Rose. He tended her as she had tended him, laying out her body, washing and closing her wounds, wrapping her in linen as many yards long as the years of her life, before finally burying her in the garden beneath a wooden post on which he had carved the devices of both the sun and the moon. When Graham Thomas finally rode out from Riverbend, a whole man in body, if not in soul, he took his leave astride Eden Rose's horse. His own armor and banners were folded away in the packs on a mule that followed, complaining in the manner of its kind. Her white shield he had strapped to his arm, and her surcoat cut for a device, brown stains of her heart's blood still upon it. The townsfolk whispered that he went to war against his own family, riding to find revenge on his old retainers. But the truth is never so simple. There were no marbled-hulled slaughters, only rumors, from places as far-flung as Chemiketa in the roaring desert and the far-most west, but never of the prince himself. Some claimed he rode with a pretty woman. Some claimed he had taken her name. A few said he had even taken her skin for his own. Truth or not, rumor followed the lover of Eden Rose, far past his own lonely, tumbled grave. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. 
That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Another cracker of a story from the tale of the Rose Knights. Our next story is Asmodeus Flight by Siobhan Carroll. When not globetrotting in search of dusty tomes, Siobhan lives and lurks in Delaware. She is a graduate of Clarion West, the indefatigable OWW, and the twin ivory towers of Indiana University and UBC. Her fiction can be found in such magazines as Beneath Ceaseless Skies, Realms of Fantasy, and Lightspeed. Sometimes she writes under the byline Von Carr. Both versions of herself firmly support the use of the Oxford comma. For more, you can visit her website via the link in our show notes. Her story is read by Andrea Richardson, a British singer and actress. With extensive stage and film performances to her name, she began narration and voiceover work in 2014, but enjoys using her existing skills in a different way. You can find Andrea via the links in our show notes. And now... Asmodeus Flight by Siobhan Carroll The day she turned eleven, Effie's father showed her how to die. Even the best aeronaut can be taken down by a spark, he said, his hand tracing the air between the Asmodeus engine and the oil-varnished paper over their heads. Effie swallowed. The ground below the air balloon looked unreal now, falling away into a picture of farmland and houses. But the hot flame that licked and danced before her, that threat seemed real. Effie's father hesitated, studying the engine's blue glow. Carefully, very carefully, he reached out as if to take the brass globe off its resting place. Effie braced herself, but relaxed when she saw her father was not actually going to touch the engine's surface. Mr Sadler, when he was going down, kept his wits about him, a father mind pulling at the two rolling hitches that tied the globe to the brass circle. He undid the fastenings and... Her father pressed an invisible globe to his face, a mind blowing his last breath into the smallest of the three valves on the engine. Effie watched, amazed. She had glimpsed her father making this gesture before, through doorways, when he thought he was alone. She had not realised he was rehearsing his death. If she hadn't been so captivated by his performance... The realisation might have chilled her. And that's it, her father said, returning his hands to the sides of the globe, framing the flickering blue grate. That's him, in there. Mr Sadler's ghost. Still flying after all these years. 
At a thousand feet, the air around them was clear and cool. The sun glowed red and blue through the paper of the Dover, and below them the world was spreading out like a map in green and gold. But what Effie noticed was the reverence on her father's face as he watched his old friend dance in the air balloon's hot engine. Four years later, when the news of the accident reached them, the memory of that moment made it easier for Effie to compose herself. She walked through the white glare of shock, past her sobbing mother, and approached the gentleman standing awkwardly in the entrance hall. "'Thank you for retrieving it,' Effie heard herself say. She watched her hands pluck the globe from the stranger's hands. The engine's surface was cool to the touch, and for a moment it felt unfamiliar. But peering down through the grate, she saw two blue undulations, the ghosts of Mr. Sadler and her father. "'Thank you,' Effie said again. "'It's what he would have wanted.' And she hugged the globe, as though she herself were already falling from the heavens, as though it were her own death, and not her father's, that she had been called to witness. "'It's not for sale!' Effie didn't bother looking up from her knots. The redoubtable Mrs. Brown was as adept at dispatching gentlemen buyers as she was in dealing with local tradesmen. Despite her limited height— Effie's assistant measured only four feet three inches to the objective gaze. Mrs. Brown somehow still managed to loom at people. Effie could practically hear her looming now. It's not for sale, young man, and don't you go shaking that puss at me. Do you think we're country faffle you can swindle with your sing-time songs? Off with ye! But Mr. Baxter... Mr. Baxter will be hearing his man's potuning poor women like a common raggot. Effie straightened up in time to see the young servant cower away from Mrs. Brown his face displaying the confusion that typically attended her barrage of partly invented dialect. He obviously wasn't sure what he'd been accused of, but suspected it was deeply improper. Taking pity, Effie wiped her hands with the stain rag. "'Is that Mr. Stanley Baxter of Ensgate?' "'The same!' the young man's eager-to-please face dissolved in alarm when he realised he might have committed another faux pas. "'Uh, madam, you're new to the service, I take it.' I'm to be addressed as Miss Mitchell. And you are... Fielding, Miss... Uh, Miss Mitchell. Samuel Fielding. Well, Mr. Fielding, Effie continued, please tell your master that we are not entertaining offers for the engine, now or in the future. Miss Mitchell, Fielding shifted uncomfortably, Mr. Baxter said you'd say that. He said to say... And the young man closed his eyes, evidently trying to recall the message exactly. I cannot imagine my fleet without a high balloon like the Dover. Therefore, I am proposing to hire the services of Miss Mitchell, her assistant, the balloon, and the Dover's Asmodeus engine for £2,000. Mrs. Brown sucked in a sharp breath. Effie tried to keep her face still, while her mind raced. £2,000? The balloon itself was only worth a hundred. The engine, true, was worth more. How much more was unclear these days, given Parliament's ban on West Indies ether and the old aeronautical family's reluctance to part with their engines. But two thousand pounds! With that money she could secure a land lease for her mother and still have years' worth of income set aside. Tell your master I will consider his generous offer. Feeling a flare of pride, Effie said, though my answer will probably still be the same. She flushed, wondering if she sounded childish. Fielding appeared not to notice. "'Thank you, Miss... um... Mrs...' He slid out a rolled piece of paper, evidently a contract, and dropped it on the counter. 
He managed an awkward bow to her and a hesitating bob in the direction of Mrs. Brown before fleeing down the street. What's that about? Mrs. Brown's dialect was sheathed now that the combat was over. Effie gazed after the servant, her mind racing. It's the exhibition, she decided finally. Mr. Baxter has his aerial display planned for the solstice. To truly outdo Mr. Green, he needs to put a ship close to the Crystal Palace. Mrs. Brown sniffed. He will do it with those lumbering creatures. Not the dirigibles, Effie agreed. The new inventions might be cheaper to fly than Asmodeus balloons, but they were clumsy. If he hadn't erected his own, he wouldn't be looking, Mrs. Brown observed. Effie nodded. Mr. Baxter had lost his Witch of Atlas some years ago after launching his balloon in a brewing storm. Since then, he had gained a reputation as a man who had gambled much of his family's money away at card tables, but then won it back with some clever investments in the colonies. A dubious sort of man. It would be a lot of money for Mother. Effie was suddenly aware that she had been toying with the rag in her hand, smearing her fingers with oil in the process. She re-wiped them, but it was too late. The tell-tale stains had crept onto the cracks in her knuckles. I'll have to consult with her. As she turned away, two things flickered at the edge of Effie's perception, that, in retrospect, she would wish she'd paid attention to. The first was the blue smudge the contract seal left on the counter. The second was a figure in the crowd whose posture strongly reminded Effie of Mr. Baxter. But why would Mr. Baxter watch his own servant's delivery? Effie looked back. The man had vanished into the churn of the London street. That night, Effie lay awake, fretting over Mr. Baxter's offer. Her father's marriage bond guaranteed Effie's mother a small stipend, and Effie's aeronautical demonstrations brought in occasional tides of money. But a reliable source of income would be useful. Unlike the marriage proposals Effie had fielded in recent years, Baxter's offer would also enable her to keep flying. What, then, was the source of her unease? Something kept turning at the back of her mind. A smudge of blue, as though from a hex seal, though that was impossible. Around three in the morning, Effie realised her decision was already made. The Asmodeus engine was her family's legacy. She would not sell it for a million pounds. Thankful for an excuse to close her eyes, she rolled onto her side. And was woken by a clamour outside. Lurching up, Effie saw the orange glow at her window and knew. Effie plummeted down the stairs in a rush of dark, figures clustered uselessly in front of the workshop, lit by orange and yellow. Fire! someone hollered. But Effie was already running past them, her bare feet bruising the ground, her nightdress, improper, part of her noted, a frustrating drag on the night air. Sparks floated up from the workshop. Even the best aeronaut can be taken down by one, she thought, and she struggled with the massive padlock, forcing in her necklace key, while some faint voice behind her cried, Miss, please don't! The workshop was a blaze of heat, its walls moving fire. Eyes singing, Effie dropped to her knees, where the pure air was thickest. She crawled towards the safe. No good saving the Dover's paper now. That and the galley she'd stained were gone, but neither of these things were the heart of an Asmodeus balloon. Something crashed beside her, letting in a gust of air. I might die here, on the ground of all places. But Effie set that thought aside. The entire world came down to this, feeling her way to the mercifully cool metal of the safe. It was empty. Effie groped inside the space the Asmodeus engine should be. It couldn't not be here. Suddenly, hard arms yanked her away. She struggled, trying to protest, but her burning lungs lacked air. 
She was dragged backward through the flaring dark. She was on cold ground, rolling and coughing, while ice water drenched her body. Pushing herself up on a numb arm, Effie saw her father's workshop collapse in a shower of sparks. Today, Effie said grimly. Mrs. Brown glanced sideways. Since the fire, she treated her young mistress cautiously, as though Effie was one of her mother's fine Wedgwood cups. There's no proof Mr. Baxter had out to do with the fire. Effie shook her head, unwilling to replay her frustrating conversation with Scotland Yard. He offered the contract to cover himself, she muttered. Nobody will suspect a gentleman of stealing an item he was about to purchase. He knew I'd refuse. The contract still was hexed. It silenced our alarms. Oh, aye, Mrs. Brown agreed. But coppers want proof if they're going to lay hands on a gentleman. For a moment, Mrs. Brown looked abstracted, perhaps reflecting on some episode from her mysterious past. Then she said, If you're caught filching, it'll be a hard thing. They won't drop you, miss, but... I'll sell my confession to the newspapers, Effie said, her chin jutting defiance. It'll be a scandal. They'll shirk about for a day or two, Mrs. Brown agreed. They'll clap you in Bedlam a mite longer. Effie had visited Bedlam once, and her recollection of that tour, which had, after all, only shown the ladies' botanical club the respectable cells, brought her up cold. You think they do that? Mrs. Brown gazed at her with flat, hard eyes. If you weren't respectable, miss, she said, you'd already be there. Effie swallowed, taking in Mrs. Brown's meaningful glance at her unusual dress with its flexible stays and higher petticoats. The sideways glance of the shuffling crowd suddenly struck her as menacing. It was one thing to attract such glances as a female aeronaut with a balloon, an outre figure to be sure, but one protected by the aura of British science. But as an oddly dressed woman without a balloon, she suddenly felt her vulnerability keenly. Still, Effie said, hearing the stubbornness in her voice and half hating herself for it, we're going to find it. Today. She turned, craning her neck to catch sight of the aerial fleet bobbing behind the Crystal Palace. There was Mr. Green's Nassau, the largest Asmodeus balloon ever built, turning in the breeze like a glorious red and blue planet. There was an old-fashioned Montgolfier. There were passenger vessels taking paying customers up on cautious trips to view the top of the palace. And then there were the detestable Mr. Baxter's dirigibles, hovering at a distance from the rest. Effie and Mrs. Brown dutifully filed in with the shilling crowd. The great exhibition had attracted a seething mixture of nationalities. Scar-faced Americans, Q-sporting Chinese, green-scaled inner-earthers, even an odd Frenchman, the latter drawing suspicious glances from John Bull and continental exiles alike. But nominally, at least, the Pax Francia Treaty still held. The Frenchman wafted through the crowd, an unhappy-looking security agent plodding in his wake. Under different circumstances, Effie might have joined the crowd in gaping at the Crystal Palace's dazzle of fabrics, its pink diamonds and arching dinosaur bones. As it was, she and Mrs. Brown had one destination in mind, the great aerial docks, futuristically imagined. The crowd entered the observation platform for the docks. Upturned faces gawped at the shadows of dirigibles and at the statues commemorating aeronautical luminaries. Joseph Priestley, whose quest for pure air had led to the isolation of the ethereal element, the Montgolfier brothers, who had first demonstrated humanity's capacity for flight, and lastly, Sir Humphrey Davy, 
who had successfully driven Napoleon from England's skies, only to expire from his wounds in the Battle of Britain's final hour. A bouquet of flowers lay at Davy's feet. Two guards stood on either side of the display case for the Veritas's engine, scanning the crowd. No doubt they were looking for the usual dangers. Foreign agitators and religious enthusiasts who mistakenly identified ether ghosts with immortal souls. Forgetting herself, Effie pressed forward with the rest of the crowd for a glimpse of Davy's ghost circling its brass confines. Miss, Mrs. Brown whispered. Reluctantly, Effie pulled back. Now that they had actually arrived, she could feel an anxious pit forming in her stomach. She hemmed some distracted labourers out of her way. Behind her, she heard a series of surprised wheezes as Mrs. Brown, unconstrained by social niceties, elbowed her way to the front of the platform. "'Ear, you!' Mrs. Brown thundered. "'What's this?' Effie ducked under the guard rope as the crowd behind her exploded into shrieks of alarm. "'Grenado!' someone shouted. "'He's working for Boney,' Mrs. Brown declared. As Effie swung herself over the raised platform, she glimpsed Avrilia, splayed to the floor by one of the guards, its yellow eyes wide with astonishment. Effie found herself hoping the guards would figure out quickly that the grenado Mrs. Brown had planted on the inner earther was a dummy. In the shadow of the now chaotic platform, Effie whipped off her skirt, revealing the aeronaut's trousers underneath. She pinned the forged performer's ribbon to her collar, tucked in her pocket, and started forward, trying to look as though she had somewhere to be. Nobody challenged her as she walked into the aeronaut's workshop. She strode between the benches, trying to glance surreptitiously at each station as she passed. In her pocket, the Hobbs picklock chafed uncomfortably against her leg. It'll open all but cold iron, miss, Mrs. Brown had promised. Under different circumstances, Effie would have been taken aback by her servant's familiarity with such devices, but now was not the time to ask questions. Then she saw the golden-purple colours of the Donna Julia. Effie slowed to an amble, smiling vaguely at the young men sanding the tackle blocks. They did a double-take when they saw her, eyes wide at the sight of a female aeronaut. Effie let her gaze float over the workstation. She saw no safe. "'I'm the new pilot,' she said pleasantly. "'Mr. Baxter's new engine wants airing. "'Where am I to get it from?' "'It was a gamble, of course, "'but if Baxter had stolen her engine, "'and he did,' Effie thought furiously, "'it had to be somewhere nearby.' "'The two men looked amazed and blank. "'Then the first one waved his hand at someone behind her. "'Oi! Fielding! "'The miss is looking for a new engine!' Effie turned to see Baxter's mop-haired servant bounding towards them. The air seemed to freeze around her. Fielding's pleasant face changed expression in slow motion, first taking on a look of surprise, and then one of happy recognition. "'Miss Mitchell! What a... I'm glad to see you're back on the field, that is,' he said, remembering himself. "'Mr. Baxter will be glad. He was terribly disappointed to hear you wouldn't be joining us.' What a horrible thing! The fire! Did you lose much of the workshop? Effie stared. If Fielding was a liar, he was the best she'd ever encountered. The Dover won't fly this season, I'm afraid, she smiled, delivering the lines she and Mrs. Brown had practised. One of my father's friends invited me to assist today, alongside my chaperone, of course, she added, remembering Balloons's dubious reputation as French inventions. She blushed, and Mr. Fielding blushed. No progress whatsoever occurred until one of the sanders said, The miss wants a look at the new engine? Fielding practically bounced with joy. He told you about the engine? 
Catching himself, he lowered his voice. It's a remarkable invention, Miss Mitchell. You have to see it. Smiling tensely, Effie followed Fielding out of the workshop and towards the looming dirigibles. They looked like something out of an antediluvian nightmare, huge and iron-grey. It was hard not to believe the nonconformists were right when they said the burning of fossilised ether, the very innovation that had permitted the elimination of the West Indies trade, infected their crafts with the souls of ancient beasts. Effie shivered in the bright sunlight, feeling as though she were indeed coming into the territory of a massive predator. "'Mr. Baxter!' Fielding waved his hands towards one of the figures examining the strain on an almost filled dirigible. Baxter, a slender man clad in impractical ruffles, froze. His expression told Effie all she needed to know. Certainty exploded into rage. She pointed at him. "'Thief!' she yelled. "'Arsonist!' This was not part of the plan. Neither, however, was Mr. Baxter's reaction. To lean over the galley and order one of his men to cast off the bowlines. Effie took off at a run. The bowline had just left its mooring post when Effie caught hold of it. Forgetting any pretense of propriety, she launched herself up the rope, hand over hand. Below, she saw the shadow of the balloon drift away from the ground, and a bewildered fielding being pulled into the air by the bowline's loop. She hoped the man had the sense to let go before they were too high. Effie, having abandoned all sense herself, hauled up into the galley, almost at the feet of a frightened-looking Baxter. "'You!' she puffed. "'Stole my engine!' Baxter raised his hands as if in protest. "'I needed to show it could be done!' He gestured towards the dirigible's glowing engine. Following his gesture, Effie saw, to her horror, a familiar brass globe burning blue within the green flame of an Owen engine. He'd stacked the two devices— a combination of power that ought to be impossible, and that would, she saw now, grant this dirigible more manoeuvrability than it had ever had before. She realised her mistake a second later, when a blow to the side of her head blackened her vision. Effie crashed onto the galley deck. Above her, Baxter wielded a heavy pole. "'I didn't mean to kill you,' he apologised. "'If you only understood! I've seen the future, you see, in the Emperor's telescope!' Napoleon's got a new alliance. The men from Mars and their mechanical ships. They'll invade from the sky and turn England red. A well-placed kick cut short the madman's rant. Effie scrambled away, her head throbbing. Somehow, in all her scheming, she had never envisioned the possibility of dying. If only I can get my engine back, she thought wildly. It'll be worth it. Her hair was yanked backward. Effie had to clutch a cleat to keep from falling. In the corner of her eye, she saw the dark shape of the pole coming for her and turned away. But before it hit, there was a crash behind her, and the grip on her hair loosened. Mr. Fielding, having pulled himself on board the airship, was apparently terminating his employment with his fists. "'Working for Boney, is it?' he yelled. "'You Frenchified villain!' Effie hauled herself up. It wasn't just her head wound, she realised. The dirigible was listing.' With a mind of its own, the monstrous airship was heading straight for the Crystal Palace. The sharp point of a British flagpole sailed into view. "'Brace!' she yelled, her training leaping to the fore. Effie pulled into four-point contact with the galley as the shatter of glass announced the worst. Glancing down, she saw Baxter push the overbalanced fielding overboard and was relieved to see the servant tumble onto one of the palace's iron ribs, just missing a fall through its glass ceiling. The dirigible leapt free. "'No, no, no!' Baxter, his face bleeding, launched himself at the helm. 
Why aren't you working? Buckets of tools skidded down the deck as the dirigible's tilt increased. Effie, hearing the hiss of air above, knew. Wasn't this the moment she'd practised since she was eleven years old? Carefully, she reached for a loose line, found its tension, and slid down towards the engines. All the fight seemed to have gone out of Baxter. He stared up at the dirigible's sagging envelope like a blind man. It can't be! Effie landed on the engine's frame. The heat from the fire was excruciating, but she had no time. Even as Baxter turned, she was already snatching the blistering Asmodeus engine from the flames, already raising it. No! Baxter grabbed at her, and suddenly he was falling, and she was following, the green ground rushing up to meet them both. The wind was loud around Effie, screechingly loud. She tried to drag the engine towards her face. This is how you die, her father had said. The engine pulled away from her. It twisted underneath her, crunching into her abdomen, forcing her upward. The wind died. Below her, a tiny figure, Baxter, hit the ground. Effie turned her face away. Her own fall had slowed to a crawl. The hard fist of the engine pushed her up. The fierce heat of her family's ghosts lowering her gently to earth. The engine deposited Effie, burned and bleeding, in the middle of Hyde Park. Energy expended, it settled in the grass beside her. She stared at it as the running people approached. Something new has been discovered today, she thought dazedly. The Asmodeus ghosts were still conscious, and they could move independently without flame. Shapes were aligning differently in her head. The famous dexterity of Asmodeus craft, the hideous accidents attending West Indies slave balloons, the alien ponderousness of the dirigibles, and somewhere, too, she was remembering what Baxter had said about the Continental Emperor and Mars and an invasion. She wasn't sure how it all fit together yet. But the moment passed. A crowd raced across the green. The determined shape of Mrs. Brown led them, and behind her, a limping fielding, looking confused. Effie glanced down at the gleaming engine sitting on the grass, its familiar ghosts circling contentedly. Thank you, the next aerial admiral said and she clambered up to greet the future. Now, we always felt that putting liquefied dead dinosaurs into our gas tanks was more than a little weird. But at least the dinosaurs aren't prone to haunting us. Not that we're aware of. Experiences may vary. More importantly... We enjoyed the way Siobhan put two strong and independent women at the forefront of her world, giving the Victorian era a well-deserved poke in the eye. If you'd like to share your thoughts on this or any of our stories, you can leave your comments on the Triple F website, our Facebook page, or on Twitter. We love hearing from our listeners, and we always want to know your thoughts on our content. Please remember, however, that Farfetch Fables operates under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 license, which means... Yes, correct, you can download the content, and you can share it all you like, but you cannot change it, and you really cannot sell it. And you must give credit where that credit is due. All other copyright remains that of the... Correct again, authors. And what will happen to violators? They will be converted into supernatural blimp fuel. Farfetched Fables is brought to you courtesy of the District of Wonders. And our special thanks go to Gary Dowell, our editor, and engineer extraordinaire Mark Sanfardino.
That's all for me. I've got cookies to bake. I'll see you next week. Bye now. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.